Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. If you have your Bible and you want to turn to beginning of the second chapter of St. John to follow along. You're welcome to do that. You're encouraged to do that. This story today takes place at a wedding. Whenever I get invited to a wedding, uh, I struggle a little bit to really enjoy myself, I have to admit. I'm always very happy, of course, for the bride and the groom, and I enjoy watching everyone else enjoying themselves, kind of like a cantankerous old man I prefer just sitting in the corner and watching from a distance, though. There's something broken inside of me that fails to do merrymaking, like most people. Uh, I don't have uh, the sort of electric slide or the cha-cha slide or the wobble or whatever else the kids these days are doing memorized because, frankly, it's been so long since anyone has successfully dragged me out onto the dance floor during one of them. Games and dancing... Loud, boisterous conversation with full-throated laughter and full abandon are all things I struggle to enjoy naturally. But I also recognize that they are all natural things to the human race on the whole, and therefore I'm aware that my struggle to like those things or to participate in them with ease is in fact a deficiency in me. Uh, Now, I don't think this rises to the level of a moral deficiency. I think it's more like a handicap or a birth defect. C.S. Lewis agrees that there can be certain things which are proper to the order of the world as God made it and intends it that way uh, for all of us. Nevertheless, um, you know, uh, that we nevertheless can fail to conform to, even though we know that ideally we should. As an example, C.S. Lewis says, to call children delightful or old men venerable is not simply to record a psychological fact about our own parental or filial emotions at the moment, but to recognize a quality which demands a certain response from us, whether we make it or not. I myself, he says, do not enjoy the society of small children, but because I speak from within objective value, uh, I recognize this as a defect in myself, just as a man may have to recognize that he is tone deaf or colorblind. So I recognize that merrymaking at a wedding is good and right and proper and that this is an objective reality, celebrating the wedding of a man and a woman through appropriate levity. And therefore, my struggle to rise to that ideal is a defect in myself. But for Jesus, I don't believe that defect was present. At a wedding at Cana in Galilee, where he was near, anyway, where he was raised, among friends and neighbors who obviously knew him since he was invited to this wedding with his mother, he was there enjoying the moment. As the creator of merriment and celebration, the very fact that he came when he was invited and that he was in attendance at this wedding is enough to tell us that he is approving of it. And not just of this marriage or even of marriage itself, but even of the party which is rightly thrown to celebrate it. We know that no one at the party knew better than him the true reality of marriage, which is that it is an enacted human institution of life that reflects the joining of the Holy Church with her Lord and Savior, the joining of humanity with its creator in an intimate, fruit-bearing, 
uniting of two fleshes in order to become one. What would eventually fill the mind and letters of St. Paul, what would be revealed in spectacular fashion to St. John in his revelation, the great eschatological wedding feast of the Lamb, was already here and now in this moment in the mind of Jesus as he smiled and danced and laughed with these his neighbors. His merrymaking was genuine because more than anyone else there, he knew what this was pointing toward and how wonderful the participation in it, even now through this human institution, really was. Which is perhaps why, when his mother whispered in his ear that the party had run out of wine, his merriment ceased for a moment. Now, going all the way back to the earliest centuries in the church, uh, the, the fathers, we see them wrestling um, with this, this moment in the story. They all admit that Jesus' response here to his blessed mother can be taken in a troubling way. This isn't just a modern problem because of our translations or our distance from them historically. This was already something that uh, those much, much closer to Jesus and his, um, uh, who knew Greek well, who knew the culture better than we would, they already heard these words and it gave them pause. So if the fathers wrestle with this, we can feel um, no shame in, in hearing these words and, and wondering, Jesus, what are, you, what are you saying? What do you mean by this? Um, Jesus really does reply with what could be called a rebuke although an extremely mild one and not fueled by anything but the most humble, fullest love possible. It's also one clothed in theological mystery. So what's happening at this moment when Mary comes to him and says they've run out of wine and Jesus replies the way he does? As we were just seeing, Jesus was presumably not merely attending but was participating in the party that was going on. His merriment though, unlike that of the other guests, was fully informed by the knowledge of the mystery of what marriage really is, something that would only be made clear to the church after his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. But currently now, knowing that this marriage as uh, his marriage, as the divine bridegroom would eventually be consummated on the cross, when he's left his father above in heaven and his mother standing below him at the foot of the cross on the earth, he would be united with his bride, the church. Like as Adam, his side would be opened and she, and, and she would flow forth with the life-giving blood. You see how all of these things from the scriptures to the, the wedding party that he's actually at were prefigurations of the reality that he knew was coming. So this glorious moment would be celebrated for eternity as heaven and earth are joined and all of creation exalts at the wedding feast of the lamb that was slain. This divine purpose, this glorious reality was what animated the merrymaking of Jesus at this wedding. And given that this was in the mind of Christ, what did Mary's implied request have to do with any of that? My hour hasn't come yet, he says, the hour when I'm the bridegroom, the hour for the cross. We can be confident that this is what he means by my hour because that phrase is used many other times throughout the Gospels referring to the cross. There are a lot of times when it's, uh, people try to get a hold of him to, to kill him, but it says his hour had not yet come. And finally, when he is talking about his hour um, in, the, in the discourse in the upper room and in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
it's this hour that he's referring to. So when he says, my hour has not yet come, he means his hour as the bridegroom, his hour for the cross. But what did he mean by the other thing he said? Woman, what have I to do with you? The Greek here is very terse and short. Ti imoi kai soi gunai. What to me and to you, woman? Basically, is, is like in English, that is the direct equivalence. What to me and to you, woman? What it seems like the Greek is really saying, though, is what is common between you and me? Our um, uh, rendition that we heard just now was, uh, what have I to do with thee, woman? And the, uh, uh, the um, Revised Standard Version puts it this way. O woman, what have you to do with me? So what Jesus is saying here. I believe in what a lot of the church fathers also agree that he's saying is, what is there in common between you and me? What do you and I have in common? And then he calls her a name, not just some demeaning word, woman, but rather by a title, woman, woman. She is the archetype of all human women when he says this to her, the new Eve, representative and typological. She is the new Eve, the mother of all. So what does she, as the typological woman, the human woman, have to do with this, her son, the son both of her, but also of God? It's precisely her humanity that they have in common. But here she's asking him to reveal his divinity. She's asking for a miracle, the first public one the first to manifest his divinity to those around him. Now remember, he's telling her that it's our humanity that we have together in common. The things of divinity are according to a properly divine order. One of the orderly ways that divine miracles unfold throughout the Gospels, for example, is that they are always in direct response to those who need the miracles themselves. It's always to the leper directly or to the demon afflicted directly or to the dead person directly that Jesus works his miracles so that they know what has happened to them and so that they themselves can respond with gratitude and repentance, with a turning to follow him. The only times we ever see Jesus healing someone at someone else's request is when the person in need of healing was unable to come to Jesus in the first place. Uh, the Canaanite woman for her daughter, for example, the centurion for his servant. We see a few examples like this. Even when the four friends brought the paralytic to Jesus through the roof, it was largely their action that um, resulted in the miracle. But it's not to them that Jesus turns and talks. It's to the paralytic man himself. So this miracle, perhaps because Blessed Mary had not yet seen this pattern from her son, is a little out of order, right? Presumably since Mary is saying this directly to Jesus and not announcing it to everyone, the fact that the wine had run out was not yet known to everyone. In fact, the master of ceremonies, the, the leader of the feast, uh, was surprised about it. He, he didn't know that they were out of wine. And if the guy in charge of everything, running it all, doesn't know that they're out of wine, it's, it's most likely that only the servants who were drawing the wine at this point knew. And somehow Mary found out and then was coming to Jesus. So Mary seems to be coming on behalf of others, sort of like the Canaanite woman or the centurion, but it's not because the wedding party wasn't capable of discovering their need on their own. 
Uh, this is a mercy his mother is looking for, yet one that sort of breaks the pattern of miracles that he would soon reveal. It could have played out differently. Imagine if uh, the wedding party, the, the servants who were drawing the wine and it ran out, had not told Mary, or Mary hadn't found out about it. And then uh, it becomes clear to the master of ceremonies that they are now out of wine. And then he has to tell the bridegroom and the bride that they're out of wine. And before you know it, all the guests find out too. And now it's that scandal precisely that Mary was hoping to avoid for them. Now the need is felt by everyone. And at that moment, Jesus could have stepped in, performed the miracle, and it would have meant something different. It would have been the same miracle he could have performed, but it would have been to alleviate the need now felt by those who were in need. It would have been probably more glorious. His fame would have spread even farther because more people would have known about it. And that seems to be the kind of miracle doing that Jesus does uh, for the rest of his ministry. But in this case, he makes an exception to that pattern. Clearly, there was nothing wrong. He wasn't breaking the divine order by doing this. He was making an exception. He was stepping out of the pattern that he himself would establish intentionally, but he was doing it at the request of his mother because he saw in her heart the same desire to um, help those in need, like the mother or centurion or anyone else who would come to Jesus on behalf of someone else. But what he did in doing miracles was to not only to relieve pain, um, everyone that he healed would eventually die. You know, Jesus wasn't performing miracles in order to relieve everyone's pain forever. What he was doing was making opportunities for people to see the glory of God and to change their hearts so that when they experienced pain for the rest of their lives and when they eventually entered into death itself, they were oriented toward God. Pain wasn't ruling their lives anymore. That's the goal of Jesus' miracles, not just to, to fix everything for good, but to fix everything in the moment to remind people that eventually God has got you. God's got this. Nothing is out of God's control. So in making this exception, Jesus does make himself known at least to a few. Number one, he responds to Mary in her request in that moment by teaching her something. He teaches her the pattern that he has in mind. And he reminds her, woman, woman, you are something special. <laughs> you are um, the archetype. Therefore, the way you relate to me is going to be an example to the whole world. The whole world. We see in Mary, not the great exception. Someone pulled out of the whole world in order to do something super special. We do see that and we laud her for that. But more Primarily, when we look at Mary, we see the great example. We see someone who comes to Jesus for every need, who looks to Jesus for everything. And Jesus responds to her faith, the mercy in her heart for the, the wedding party. He responds to that with his own mercy. But he also responds with a miracle that teaches those who did know about it something about him. The fathers of the church obviously don't just read scripture in its historical context and leave it there. They, when they read scripture as scripture, now we can read these words 
as historical documents, right? They do tell us something about, uh, you know, the um, second temple era Palestinian culture and life, and that's great. We, we learn very interesting things, and it helps to give us some context when we study the, the words of the Bible within that sort of mind frame. But when we read scripture as scripture, it is a living document. These words are alive to us, and they were alive to the church fathers. And so when they read them, they were reading in this a truth that extended beyond just the mere historical recording of an event. They saw in the wine that ran out the old covenant of God, the things that God had been doing. And it was good. The wine was good, right? Everything that God was doing for the world through the Old Testament was good. He was uh, working his purposes, and those purposes were pointing towards something good. But on their own, they run out. They run dry. And once the purposes of God, if they don't continue on to the next thing, they dry up. All that's left is plain old water. That's just us. We have nothing left of ourselves. And if we don't continue going with God and the good things he's given us, then the wine that was good also runs out for us. This is what we see, unfortunately, with our brothers and sisters who continue in the Jewish faith and don't recognize what came after. Their water is all that they have left because the old wine has run out. But thanks be to God, he steps in and does something new. He takes that water and he transforms it into even better wine than the wine that was before. That's what the master of ceremony says. He turns to the bridegroom. The church fathers say when he turns to the bridegroom, what, he's, what we see in that is, is us turning to Christ, who is our bridegroom, and saying, this is the best wine that there is. So what is this new wine? It's the new covenant. It's the drink that Jesus gives his disciples and says, this is my blood of the new covenant. This is the new thing that I'm doing. Everything that God had done for us in the past got us to a certain point. But now, if you trust me, I will take all that is you, which is weak, clear, not fortified, slippery, not, not much to be impressed with. And I will turn it into something that you have never tasted before. I will turn it into wine, not just a little bit, a lot. <laughs> the amount of wine he made in this miracle was extravagant. It was probably more than the, the wine that they had in the beginning to start with. This is an extravagant miracle. The nature of the wine wasn't just more wine. It was the best wine. It was so good. That's what this miracle teaches us. It's what it taught the few disciples that at this point he had gathered around him. It's what he showed his mother and he showed uh, a, few, a few servants. So this wasn't the pattern that he would normally use because he was working within a situation, a situation which was very human, right? <laughs> very human. Even his mother, who is the archetype of human, is still, what? Human. That's it. Mary is not a goddess. She's not some divine being. She's us. She's human. And it's from her that Jesus participates in our nature. So he knows what we need. He knows what we're about. He knows the people at a wedding like me who struggle, who have that, that birth defect of merrymaking, <laughs> They need the wine to, to, to help them out, you know, to, to gladden the heart. And Jesus was not too high and mighty to condescend to make some wine at a party. He condescended to be born 
and laid in, in smelly grass next to farm animals. He came to us to meet us where we are and to give us jugs of water, new life, new life. That's what this miracle is all about. This is so rich, this story. But from it, if we can just remember a couple things. One, Jesus approves of merrymaking, but he approves of it in the right context. He wants it to be proper, the proper kind of merrymaking. What are we celebrating when we let loose and, and kick back and enjoy ourselves? Let's make sure that we know what we're about, that we are celebrating what God has done for us when we do celebrate. Jesus Christ is the true bridegroom and his church is the true bride. That's what every Christian marriage and wedding is showing us. Yes, it is joining two people. It's a real thing. It's a real institution. There are real consequences for the bride and the groom for the rest of their lives. It is real, but it is not the end. In fact, it, it, what it's pointing toward is so rich that we call it the sign, not the reality. Okay? And then... In the miracle itself we have the wedding and then we have the wine what do we see in the wine we see God's extravagant goodness his above and beyond meeting us in our needs and, and giving us something that we could never have dreamed eternal life through faith in him not through the old law not through the signs and the symbols but through the reality we get to meet Jesus directly and he has, uh, he tides us over before we see him eschatologically, you know, with our own eyes. We see him as he truly is. How He doesn't just give us a sign to point toward that. He gives us himself, even here and now. Again, what an extravagant thing. He didn't show up and say, one day you will get to join with me directly. He says, one day you will see that you are joined with me directly. But even now, even now you join with me. How do we do that? Again, through wine, through the bread and the wine of the Eucharist, we meet God and he enters into us, our jugs of water, and turns us from the inside out into something different. He transforms us through the Eucharist. This is extravagance beyond extravagance. This is the God that we celebrate and uh, the reality that we celebrate when we, when we have the Mass, when we do liturgy, we say we're celebrating the Mass. It all ties together. Once again, we're here in celebration of what God is doing for us. So those are, those are the things to hold on to and remember. And those realities, if, if we let them get into our hearts and, and transform our minds, then our souls will follow. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.